being prepared in life is really half the battle. Showing up for the class and being on time, studying for the exam, making sure you have all the necessary supplies for that first day of school. So how do you know if you're prepared for and ready for the first day of kindergarten? Well, if you're not prepared, I'll help you out. At least for the Greenwood School District, you'll need the following. Five boxes of the 24 count of Crayola crayons, 12 glue sticks, one package of number two Ticonderoga pencils, have no idea what that means, Sharpened, no theme plastic covered, please. One plastic school box, one rest mat, blue, red, one inch thick only, please. One backpack, one box of tissues, one package of sandwich or quart size Ziploc bags, one washable Crayola water color set, three colors of Play-Doh, that sounds fun, eight skinny black dry erase markers, two container Clorox wipes, one bottle of Elmer's glue, one pair of scissors, two packs of paper towels, one reusable water bottle, and one bottle of Germex. Well, I wonder why. Uh, Whether you're going into kindergarten, fifth grade, seventh grade, the twelfth grade, or maybe your first day in college, uh, we all need to be prepared for whatever task, whatever assignment that is put before us. Being prepared for that first day of school is a really big deal. It's a big deal for the students. It's a big deal for the teachers and administrators. It's even a big deal for the parents, too. Maybe we should have put there on the syllabus, parents need an extra tissue box when they see their kids go off to school. You see, parents even need to be prepared because without those supplies, the student won't be ready. And if the student isn't ready, it reflects poorly on the parents too. That's because both the parents and the students are in a joint effort together. They're in a joint effort to accomplish the task, face the assignments, and take on the challenges that will be there that school year. That's because being prepared is half the battle. But friends, how do we know if we are prepared for and ready? Not simply for the first day of school, but for the rest of our lives. Parents, how do we know that we are preparing our children right now for what they will be up against once they mingle with non-Christian friends who come from non-Christian families, who all have non-Christian worldviews? How do we know we're helping our children get ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within them, the hope that we teach and preach every Lord's Day in the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we know we're helping them know both what to believe and why to believe it? As parents, how do we know that we are preparing our children how to face some of the most spiritually dangerous temptations that are out there? Temptations that could radically alter your kids' lives or even radically destroy their lives. Temptations like sexual promiscuity, premarital sex, same-sex attraction and homosexual acts, adultery, emotional infidelity and emotional affairs, lust, pornography, dirty and vulgar movies, erotic and immoral romance novels, 
purchasing immodest dress attire, and wearing sensual clothing. And this exhortation isn't just for parents. We already know that, right? This exhortation is for all Christians, men and women of all different ages, young, midlife, or older. So friends, how are we doing in our lives today to be prepared for and ready for the battles we will face? How are we doing in applying God's wisdom in these areas of sexual temptation in our lives? Are we prepared for the battle facing each one of us every day? And are we actively helping other believers with the temptations of sexual sin facing them? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 5. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, mostly now, you can find that on page 306. Last week, we began the first of a four-part sermon series walking through various themes found in the book of Proverbs. If you weren't with us last Sunday, I'd encourage you to listen to that sermon on the church podcast. We'll kind of catch you up to speed as we continue through these Proverbs. Last Sunday, we spent quite a bit of time on the background, context, and genre of the Proverbs. Then we spent about 25 minutes or so in the latter part of the sermon uh, considering what the Proverbs should look like in the life of a Christian. Now, how do we become wise in the eyes of God? That's really what we were answering last week. How do we become wise in the eyes of God? Well, look back in Proverbs 1 with me. Proverbs chapter 1. This was kind of your key text. Hope you've been trying to memorize it. I may stop you at the door sometime in the month of August and go, Sarah, what's Proverbs 1-7 say? Or Greg, give it to me, man. What is it? I may catch you. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of of obtaining all true spiritual knowledge from God. Thus, it is the controlling principle of becoming truly wise as we live in God's world, God's way. Now, don't misunderstand me. We can become smart. We can become very academic and intellectual simply by reading lots of books, doing lots of research projects, getting several degrees, But friends, all that knowledge comes from the world. That knowledge can be useful, but that kind of knowledge can only help you so far. That only knowledge can get you good jobs and good careers, but that knowledge does not equate with knowing God, knowing his will. Friends, the only way we can have spiritual wisdom, not of this world, but of heaven above is that we have to fear and know God. Spiritual wisdom that teaches us the mind of Christ can only come by the Spirit, and that comes through faith in Christ. Uh, What is wisdom? It's skillfully applying the knowledge that God imparts to us. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Friends, it means to adore Him, uh, to be in awe of Him. It means to treasure Him, be satisfied with Him, Put him first in our affections, first in our priorities, first in our relationships, first in every conceivable square inch of our lives. 
And friends, when we put our trust in Christ, the fear of the Lord is not a terror or some type of anxiety that we have to live with that we think God will just reject us. That's a part of the wonderful blessing of being a Christian. We can fear the Lord but not be afraid of him rejecting us because it tells us in 1 John, 1 John 4, 18 and 19, John says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. His love can drown out and push out all sinful fear that we shouldn't live with. And friends, it's only through knowing Jesus that we can see our foolishness, that we can see our folly. Because in trusting in Christ, we see that Christ is the wisdom from God to us. And in knowing Jesus, the Lord begins to change our hearts, right? He puts his fear, a righteous, holy, loving fear in our hearts that begins to help us love what God loves and hate what God hates. Uh, You remember these Proverbs from last week? Look with me at Proverbs 3, verse 7. Proverbs 3, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Again, Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. Uh, Last week, we learned that no one becomes a Christian because they were moral enough or smart enough. Salvation is all of God's grace, which includes our spiritual growth. It includes the day we were born again, and it will include what's going on in our life right now, and it will conclude on the day where we behold him face to face. Friends, that means that God's grace is 100% of the only thing we can boast in when it comes to being saved. His grace enables us. His grace empowers us. His grace equips us to pursue a life of holiness and to put sin to death in our life. And friends, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. One of several themes that the book of Proverbs talks about that necessarily involves our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of Christ-likeness, and are putting to death of sin in our lives. And all of that out of a righteous fear of God. Uh, This theme this morning is going to be very relevant and very important to each one of us. And this will be probably one of those sermons that you'll probably need to listen to again and again, because it will probably just ring true again and again the longer we live. The theme is this, beware of the dangerous allure of adultery. Or you could put it this way, beware of looking for love in all the wrong places. Look with me now at Proverbs 5, starting in verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. You may keep discretion And your lips may guard knowledge, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. 
and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is God's word. Throughout the 31 chapters of Proverbs, we're given examples, we're given visuals, we're given descriptions of women who fear the Lord. And thus women who are rightly commended for the good fruits that they bear from their life. For example, you can just jot these down. You definitely need to turn to all these. Proverbs 11:16a says a gracious woman gets honor. Proverbs 12 verse 4a says an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Proverbs 31, 10 to 31 expands in great detail of what characteristics the virtuous or excellent wife has. If you read it very carefully, the core causation for why her husband is proud of her, her husband commends her, her husband sees his need for her, and even her children praise her is because of her relationship to her God. Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The other Proverbs also speak, they speak well of both women and wives who are a blessing to those who live near them or with them. It echoes the same sentiment. Proverbs 14, verse 1a, the wisest of women builds her house. Again, Proverbs 19, 14, house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Gentlemen, if you're single in here, or fathers, if you are raising boys, you should be praying now. We should be teaching, helping young men think about what kind of wife you should be looking for. You should ask for God's best, and one of the things you're going to see in God's best is a woman who's prudent. She's mindful of God in every aspect of her life. She fears the Lord, and she's cautious and careful. Uh, she is a woman worthy to pursue and desire as a wife 
because she's careful with her words, she's careful with her decisions, and most importantly, she's careful and attentive to her relationship with God. That's what it means to be a prudent wife. But the Proverbs are also honest and quite bold to warn us about women who should not be commended. The types of women men should avoid intermingling with and especially to avoid becoming romantically involved with. And these are the same types of women that sisters in Christ should be vigilantly avoiding becoming themselves. The types of women that moms and dads right now should be prayerfully and actively training their young daughters not to imitate either. For example, folly or foolishness is personified as a woman who is loud, seductive, and knows nothing, leading others astray into further sin. Proverbs 9, 13 to 18. And then there is the nagging, hot-tempered, unappeasable, relentless water torture of a wife, also known as the quarrelsome wife, or the fretful and argumentative wife. And these Proverbs are Proverbs 19, 13, 21, 9, 21, 19, 25, 24, and 27, 15, and 16. And then there are a handful of other negative descriptions of the type of women men should watch out for and avoid. And again, descriptions of women that Christian women should avoid imitating themselves. Proverbs eleven twenty two, like a gold ring and a pig snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Proverbs 12, 4b, a wife that is not virtuous or excellent in the eyes of God is one who brings shame and is like rottenness in her husband's bones. Proverbs 14, 1b, a wife who lacks godly wisdom with her own hands tears her house down. But there's also another type of woman spoken about in the Proverbs quite frequently, more than all those other descriptions combined. It describes a woman that Christian men who fear and love God should mark out, pay attention to, and avoid getting romantically involved with. The type of woman that a man should never listen to, entertain conversations with, or even go near with his life. A type of woman described in various ways that screams at the top of its lungs with warning after warning after warning to not be deceived by. She's called the forbidden woman. Your translation may even say the strange woman. doesn't mean that she's got a weird personality. That might be true. That's just another way of seeing a woman that does not belong to you within the covenant of marriage. She is a strange. She is not a familiar companion. You can read more about the forbidden woman as we'll look together. Proverbs 2.16, She's also called the adulteress in Proverbs 2.16, and 30.20. She's also called an evil woman in Proverbs 6.24. She's called a prostitute in Proverbs 6, 26, 23, 27. Friends, this is the temptress. She's a huntress. Her heart 
is after. Naive, gullible, lust-driven men. She is hunting men like this that are easy prey. This is the seductive woman that does not fear God. She does not honor her marriage vows if she's married. And a woman who has deceived many of men since sin entered the world a very long time ago. But all these Proverbs, friends, speak to a much bigger and very common temptation that touches each one of us, both men and women, and of all ages. And that's the temptation towards sexual sin. The temptation towards adultery. The temptations towards sexual lust. So what is sexual sin? The Bible uses a bigger word that's not used as often, fornication. The Greek word is porneia, or sexual immorality in our Bibles. What is is fornication? What is adultery, for that matter, according to the Bible, and not Congress, or the White House, or the Supreme Court, or the local judge? What does the Bible have to say about these things? One author defines it this way. In our language, fornication is sexual activity in the absence of a marriage covenant, while adultery is sexual activity contrary to an established marriage covenant. In other words, sexual sin or sexual immorality is any type, friends, any type of sexual activity that is reserved only between a man and a woman within the covenant protection and covenant commitment of marriage. Adultery, then, is sexual activity that disregards one's marriage covenant, disregards one's marriage vows, and disregards the defilement of the marriage bed by sinning with someone that does not belong to you, someone who is not your spouse. Hebrews 13.4 puts it in this very sharp and stark way. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Friends, the Bible is saturated on this subject, and I'm spending time on this because I don't want to assume just because you're a member here or you've grown up in Baptist churches or you read your Bible, you don't know a biblical sexual ethic. I don't want to assume that. So I want to teach the plain, clear right off the pages of Scripture, understanding on this subject. Earlier, we read in the corporate Scripture reading, one of the Ten Commandments. Friends, we need to know our Ten Commandments. We need to study them. That's why we recite them, because Jesus loves the Ten Commandments. Therefore, we should love the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. It's there in the text, and God's not changing his mind. Mark read earlier from 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul draws our attention to the ripple effect of damage and rebellion that sexual sin does to one's life, one's relationships, one's thought life, one's testimony, and even one's body. Listen again, 1 Corinthians 6, 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. In other words, God didn't create it to do that, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Then again, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Friends, we live in a world today that screams this nonsense that you can't tell me what I can and cannot do with my body. My body is my own. Friends, a theology of the body, according to Christianity, is this. No, it's not. (laughs) That body was given to you by your maker. And if you're a Christian, that body's been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, and it will be glorified in the new heavens and new earth. We cannot do whatever we want with our body. That's not biblical. That's demonic. God owns our bodies. And our bodies were not meant for sexual sin. It was meant for worship to the Lord. And we see again, Paul is utterly clear. Why don't you go ahead and turn there. 1 Thessalonians. Look in the New Testament. Hold your place in Proverbs. 1 Thessalonians. Very important text. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 8. I quote this very often during helping couples and during the dating season and engagement time. Help them understand what is God's will for our life? It's a fantastic question, but I can give you an answer right off the text. You don't even have to pay me to do it. I can just read it to you. God, God, what, what, what's God's will for my life, Pastor Blake? All right, well, I'll at least read this one to you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8. For this is the will of God. All right, here we go. This is what I've been looking for. Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in the holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You can turn back to Proverbs. Sometimes people will ask you, well, what if I don't actually act on my sexual desires? That's got to be better than acting on them, right? What does a little lust hurt anyway? Is a mental sexual fantasy and lustful indulgence really all that big of a deal? Well, for starters, the Ten Commandments that we read earlier has more to say than just you shall not commit adultery. God also said in the last commandment that coveting was sinful. You can't see coveting. You can see the application of what we want, but coveting is a distorted, idolatrous desire to seek, to go after, and to complain and get angry until you get what you think you want, even if God has chosen not to give it to you. It's to want what God has said no to or not now to right now. Did you notice one of the things that he mentions? Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And friends, the inverse is true too. That also means your neighbor's husband. And of course, Jesus had some pretty important things to say about this, didn't he? What does Jesus have to say, not about the actions of adultery, but the attitudes of our heart? Matthew 5, 27 to 28, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Randy Alcorn summarizes Jesus' teaching here by putting it this way. 
Lust is mental promiscuity. That's why getting married doesn't solve the lust problem. A man who looks at other women will still do it. A lustful person keeps moving from picture to picture, partner to partner. Men married to a beautiful wife can have just as high a likelihood of a pornography addiction. It's a sickness of the soul. It only gets worse unless there's true repentance and change. So friends, here we are this morning staring at a subject that we can all relate to in one way or another. A subject that many of us might even be squirming in our seats about because we have sexual sin in our life right now. A subject that some of us feel deep wounds and pain about because of the sexual sin someone imposed on us, violating us, whether as a minor or as an adult. A subject that many of us have been affected by, whether because we have committed adultery or someone we cared about has committed adultery. Friends, it could be a whole host of other issues we could talk through. Sexually transmitted diseases, pornography addiction, homosexual desires, or daily and weekly indulgence in fantasies about someone that does not belong to you. Friends, regardless of where we're at this morning, the goal and the target is the same for everyone. We want to know God deeply and hate sin seriously. We want to know God deeply and we want to hate sin seriously. Friends, we want to treasure Jesus as the surpassing pleasure that makes sin look dissatisfying to our lives. Friends, now we're going to be looking now at Proverbs And I just want to kind of put the seatbelt on there. There are other things that we can talk about through the Proverbs and all of the Bible on this topic. Maybe I'll do a series on it one day if that would be helpful. But Proverbs chapters 2, 5, 6, and 7. That's 2, 5, 6, and 7. That's not an auction. That's me quoting the text. Okay? We're going to encounter again and again and again the same drumbeat, the same song being put on repeat from a daddy to his sons, from a father to young men. And this could also be translated, of course, from a mom to a son, a mom to a daughter, or a father to a daughter. It is a parenting charge in these first nine chapters of Proverbs. Now look with me now, now that we've laid a strong foundation for a biblical sexual ethic, let's look at Proverbs 5, starting in verses 1 to 6. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. The proverb begins with a plea from a father to a son. But again, keep in mind, this could easily be translated from a father to a daughter, a mother to a son, a mother to a daughter. In verses 1 and 2, the father pleads with the son to listen to him, to pay close attention to what he has to say, 
to listen carefully and take his dad seriously, to put down the phone, to turn off the TV, to listen. Pull up the chair, son. Just give me 15 minutes of your time. I'm going to impart wisdom to you because I too was a young man. And I too have walked this life and I too have scars. Listen to me, young man, because I know what's best for you. What does he tell him? Well, he tells him to listen and then he tells him why. You know how the kids like to ask parents, well, why? Well, this father's anticipating the why. That's what he does in verses 3 to 6. He, in essence, tells his son, son, there's women out there that will tell you what you want to hear. They will make you feel wanted, pursue you romantically and sexually, even women that will say all the right things to make you feel like a million bucks and very important. They will dress in certain ways to capture your attention with ulterior motives. Young man, this is a trap. Son, it's a trap. It's not for love thereafter, but for lust. It's not even for marriage because it's for full-blown adultery. How do we know that? Well, we see two clues. Turn back to Proverbs 2. Proverbs 2. Again, if you read Proverbs 2, 5, 6, and 7 together, you'll see these overlap with each other. Proverbs 2, 16 to 17, we see the same marching orders from a dad to a son. And we see the same descriptions about this type of woman. But also notice what is said about the woman's marital status. Verse 16, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman. Again, it could be translated strange. It's not her personality, but she doesn't belong to you. Someone who's outside of, not a close companion in marriage. From the adulteress with her smooth words. In other words, when she talks, she says exactly what you want to hear. When she whispers, when she flirts, when she gives you compliments at work. In that email, when she compliments your dress, your attire, how hard you work. Verse 17 who forsakes the companion of her youth. The word companion means a close friend, often denoted for what we should be experiencing in marriage. And forgets the covenant of her God. In other words, this woman is faithless to God and she's disregarding the vows she made before God to her husband. Now look back to Proverbs 5. Another clue that we see this woman is not just some random woman that he just stumbles across at the airport. Uh, This woman is an adulterer. Look at Proverbs 5, verse 20. Proverbs 5, verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? And so what does the father do? He's saying, listen to me, son. And here's why. Here's how it's going to sound good, look good, feel good, but there's something underneath the the present, the gift, that is different than what you're seeing with your eyes. Well, in verses 7 and 8, he sends him a hurricane evacuation siren, a warning. Verse 7, he repeats himself again, as all parents do. Can I get an amen? Listen to me, son. 
If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, pay close attention. Don't tune me out. Verse 8, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. In other words, don't even go close to where this woman lives. Don't even begin the first step walking down that street. He says, did you notice, keep your way far from her. Not stand on the edge of the cliff. Not say that you could be strong enough. Keep your way far. Distance is your friend, young man, with this woman. If you go down that street, young man, my dear son, the one I made and have raised, you will begin down a street that will lead to moral suicide. Friends, isn't this exactly the same commands talking about all throughout the Bible? What do the apostles say to us as Christians? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. Run. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lust. Run. Romans 13.14, make no provision for the flesh. That means don't put it before your eyes, don't put it in your house, don't put it in your life. Do not feed the beast of the flesh, but starve it. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And even in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Young ladies, just because a young man is nice to you, doesn't mean he's God's best for you? Does he love and fear God more than he's trying to go after you? One of my first questions when a young lady says, I've met a guy, I don't ask if he's nice. I just try to get through all the hard stuff right now so that we can rejoice later. (laughs) I just got two questions. What are you most impressed with about his life? What are you most attracted to? And the number two, I want to know who's discipling him. Who's mentoring that man? Who's pouring into him? Because I can tell you, young lady, that's who you're about to marry. He's being influenced. The question is, is he being influenced by God and godly men? If not, he's being influenced by something else. And I cannot tell you how many times where I've sat in pulpits in different churches, and I've preached, and I've looked over a sea of people, and I see women by themselves. You know why? Because many years ago, they got married to a guy who they thought was a spiritual giant, but really they were overlooking that very important quality. Does he love the Lord? And are others testifying to it? Friends, what does this admonition mean for you right now? To run, to flee, to make no more provision. In other words, stop. Maybe it's to stay completely away from the temptations to view sinful material on the internet. 
whether on your phones, computers, or Netflix? Is it to avoid opening up your heart and sharing intimate things with someone you're becoming attracted to? But they're off limits. Maybe they're married. Maybe you're married. Or maybe they're not even a Christian at all. And you, sh- you know you should not be romantically involved with them. Is it avoiding certain places where people will be dressed immodestly? You know you're tempted to look, linger, cast that second glance, and lust in your heart because they're showing more skin than clothing. Is it avoiding certain parties where you know sexual temptation will be there? Gentlemen, is it avoiding certain job opportunities and job promotions that would make you travel and be away from your family too much? I've got a list, I've got a roster of men who have been laid low as victims to sexual sin because they were always away from their families. Everyone's got different jobs, different callings. There are exceptions to the rule. But if you know a job is going to take you to places where you know you could be tempted, unusually tempted, should be praying, Lord, is this going to be the best job opportunity for my own soul's sake? To be in that hotel by myself three out of four weekends a year or month, to be away from my family, to be around a lot of single women. You got to have a little more forethought there. Friends, it simply might be avoiding people right now in our life that they say all the right things we want to hear, but you know their motives are off. Friends, wherever we are, you already know what the Bible teaches now. We have to ask ourselves a question. Are we running? Are we fleeing? Are we avoiding sexual temptation? Or are we ignoring it and playing with it? Author John Kinchin captures this self-deception that can be true for all of us if we don't heed the warnings. Listen to what he says. If we are to flee immorality, then we must not flirt with temptation. We must not dawdle, he's more of a British guy, by the way, at the edges of what is permissible. We must not toy with the idea of sin, being titillated by the mere thought of indulging. Listen to this. Sadly, he who stops to play in the devil's neighborhood seldom ever leaves. That's why the father told the son, don't go near her house. Don't even go down that street. Distance is your friend, young man. And if you are being tempted today, friends, there is a promise from our God who loves us to help us with this temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I remember one time about seven or eight years ago, a young man was not married, but he was wanting to take holiness serious. And I knew he had confessed to me uh, sin with pornography. And I said, well, listen, I'll help you as much as you want me to. Just don't lie to me and do everything I ask you to do. And so this was Dennis. And we were all sitting in our living room and he texted me. He said, hey man, can I come do my homework at your kitchen table? I won't bother your family. And I didn't even ask why. He didn't want to be in his apartment by himself. 
He said, I need to do work where there's other people around, and you said I could call you. I said, go ahead, man. What, what, what happened there? The Lord used an instrument, me, to be a way of escape for him, to put him in a situation where that temptation will subside. Friends, maybe even this sermon this morning is God's kind wake-up call for us. Maybe Proverbs 5, here in August, is God's screaming to us, here's your way of escape. Seek my face and get help. It's not too late. Well, friends, the father here gives the son the reasons for why he shouldn't even begin walking down that street. He, in essence, says, if you don't listen to me, son, you're going to face regret and irreversible consequences that will lead to utter ruin. In verse 4, look back at verse 4, he said this woman's flattery and sweet speech is going to end bitter for him. Bitter as wormwood. It's going to be horribly distasteful. It's going to be painful for him. Painful as sharp as a two-edged sword going into his side. In other words, he's telling this young boy what we all know is true. Sin never delivers on what it promises. And then in verse 5, And in verses 22 and 23, uh, the father is telling the son, listen, it's not only going to end bitter and bad. Listen, this could end to a premature death, disease, or utter spiritual darkness. He talks about the place of the dead, or Sheol. He talks about being ensnared in a trap, being led astray. He's telling his son, I love you so much to tell you the truth. If you do not heed this warning, it's going to end really, really bad for you. And then in verses 9 to 14, he tells his son, if you go down this path with this woman, you're going to lack any friends. You think these people you were running with were your best friends? You think that woman really loved you? Wait till the sin gets opened up and popped up. He says they will be merciless to you. You'll find out who your true friends are, and you'll find out if you're running with a bunch of people who don't fear God, you'll find out that they actually don't care much about you. They won't be there for you. They won't show forgiveness towards you. He's, as in essence, telling this kid, listen, you're not going to be happy. You're going to be miserable. You're going to groan. You're going to mourn. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be disappointed. He says at the end of your life, you will groan. And he'll groan with regret after regret after regret. And the most painful part of it all is that he'll remember all the people God had put in his life to warn him, to teach him, to disciple him. He says there in verse 13, look at Proverbs 5, 13. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. These were his disciples. These were his pastors. These were his mentors. Friends, this was his mom and dad, all those years of pouring into them. Their voice and his teacher's teaching will come to haunt him. And he will sit there lying all alone with the destruction and consequences of sin with those reminders, I did not listen. God gave me chance after chance after chance after chance, sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon, mentor and disciple, mom and dad, and I didn't listen. And Friends, if we ignore God and we ignore his warnings for too long, we may not feel anything anymore. 
And that's a scary place to be. Members of CCBC, one of the reasons we emphasize meaningful church membership here is so that we aren't self-deceived. We need mirrors that are 360 degrees. We need help. We need accountability. We need support. We need prayer. But loving church discipline doesn't begin when someone's excommunicated. That's the final act. According to Jesus in Matthew 18, 15 to 16, Galatians 6, 1 with Paul, a loving church discipline is the weekly relationships of believers investing in one another, speaking the truth to one another. And this is Jesus' way of helping us stay on the narrow way by telling us and warning us to flee, to run, to heed his word, to heed his wisdom, to listen, to heed the Spirit's conviction in our life. And even to heed the warnings and teaching of godly men and women who pursue us when we go astray. Friends, a church that does not care about holiness, that does not care about sin, that tolerates it in the name of love, brings Jesus a really bad reputation. An unholy church is a disgrace to King Jesus. A church is full of sinners, yes, but a church of repentant sinners, helping one another get to heaven, that's God's will. Friends, we should be so invested in one another's lives, not as detectives, not policing, but invested like a family. God uses the local church much like the bumpers at the bowling alley. You know, how are we going to avoid that ball going into the gutter? We need those bumpers. We need the body of Christ speaking into our life, sitting under his word. Friends, it is loving to tell people the truth. It is loving to pursue them in love, even if they don't want it at first. What did the writer of Hebrews say in Hebrews 12? How does the Father love us? Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So does the father instruct his son to do anything proactively? I mean, so far it's listen to me and run. Well, eventually you're going to get tired and you got to go down some street and you got to do something with your life. What else should I be doing? Well, he tells him in verses 15 to 19 that God has a wonderful and wise design for where sexual pleasure should be experienced and enjoyed. And that's in the context of marriage. He doesn't just tell him to avoid the, right, the wrong kind of women. He tells him to enjoy, take pleasure in, and delight in the right woman in his life, which is his wife. In very erotic, romantic, visual terms, he tells his son to be sexually satisfied with his wife. And cultivate his marriage with passionate lovemaking and covenant faithfulness. He describes a man's wife here as like a fountain to satisfy one's thirst from, a thirst that is quenched by the companionship of his wife, but also the sexual union with his wife that they enjoy together. He says there in verses 18 and 19, if you want to look there with me, he says to rejoice in the wife of his youth and to continue to let his fountain be blessed which, in other words, he's implying to him, the wife you got married to when you were young 
is going to be the same wife that you'll be married to when you're old. Rejoice in the wife when, when you were in your early 20s and in your mid-40s and when you're in your late 60s. And by God's grace, maybe even in your 70s, 80s, and 90s. Rejoice in that wife, young man. Marriage, friends, is not a wedding day. Marriage is a lifetime of learning how to be faithful to your wedding vows and to love someone with the help of God. Marriage is about learning how to daily die to self and selflessly give yourself away for the good of your spouse and ultimately for the glory of God. In verse 19, we see a crystal clear text. The Bible is not embarrassed to use language all throughout the Song of Solomon and even here of talking of the goodness of sex and marital intimacy. Look at what he says in verse 19. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. By the way, I wouldn't call your wife an animal you're gonna hunt later this year. This is Hebrew. We can come up with some other ideas later. But anyway, moving on. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. In other words, sex is God's idea. It's not the world's. It's not an animalistic thing. Sex is spoken about in the first two chapters of the Bible. Adam and Eve came together as one flesh. Listen, that wasn't hand-holding, because eventually babies came. Marriage... God's way involves sex in God's way. One way God uses to help a spouse not be overcome by sexual passion or Satan's temptations is through by being committed and faithful in their marriage bed. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, two married couples in here of all ages, uh, you already know this if you are further along than me, every season of marriage will bring its own set of joys and sorrows, surprises and anticipations. And the longer you're married, the more we'll see ourselves age, our body doesn't work like it used to, and youthful beauty does fade with time. But as married couples, no matter what age we are, we must work hard to not allow familiarity to breed contempt. Like any stewardship we receive from God, we are called to manage and cultivate whomever God gives us for his glory and the good of our marriage. A good sex does not create a good marriage, but a good marriage will strengthen the bonds of marriage through praying for your spouse, prioritizing meaningful conversation with your spouse, uh, by taking care of your body and being attractive for your spouse and your spouse alone. Those are the ingredients. That is the atmosphere that creates the possibilities to enjoy sex the way God intended. For those who are single and desire married, pray that now God would show you that his ways of pursuing holiness and avoiding sexual temptation is better. Help fight for faith by seeing that God is wiser than us. If he invented this marriage, sex, and he knows what sin does in people's lives, just remember he is the one who's pleading for us. Listen to me. A pastor friend of mine, Zach Schlegel, once said this, Quote, Satan will do whatever he can to get you in the bed, 
before you're married. And he'll do whatever he can to get you out of the bed after you're married. Think about that one. Friends, may we heed both God's positive and stern warnings in his word. Every command God gives is an expression of his love. Look with me at verses 20 to 23. 20 to 23. The father concludes his fatherly plea to prepare his son for the temptations that would await him. Look at me in verse 20. He raises the question, why should you be intoxicated, my son? In other words, being led astray with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. Look at verse 21. It starts with four, which is a a reason, a grounding for why he's been raising these questions, raising these admonitions. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Brothers and sisters, no one will get away scot-free when committing adultery. That's a myth. Someone may commit adultery and marry their mistress, and it will find them out. They will give an answer for that. If they don't repent, God will call them to account. Our sins will find us out. Verse 21 gives us that guarantee, right? Look at verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of who? The Lord. And he ponders all his past. Friends, there are no truly secret sins. There's no such thing. Because God sees everything in public and in secret. He sees what we're looking at on the screen. He sees who we're talking to. He sees what we're doing that is polluting our thought life. And when we're neglecting our marriage and we're not cultivating love and respect with the spouse, he gave us. He sees it all. No one will get away pain-free, friends, if you commit adultery. There is nothing safe about sexual sin. Nothing. Nada. Look over quickly to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, 27 to 29. Proverbs 6, 27 to 29 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Look down at verse 32. Proverbs 6 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. And then turn over to Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7, look with me starting verses 18 to 23. Proverbs 7, verse 18, come, this is the adulteress, this is the temptress, come, let us take our fill of love till morning, let us delight ourselves with love. Verse 19, for my husband is not at home, he has gone on a long journey, he took a bag of money with him, at full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech she persuades him, with her smooth talk she compels him, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know it will cost him his life. 
Go back to Proverbs 5. If someone falls into this kind of sin, sexual immorality, they go down that street, they go down that path, they get on that website, why do they do it? Why are they willing to take on the consequences of sin rather than heed the freedom and pleasures of God? Look at verse 23. Proverbs 5, 23, he dies for lack of discipline. There's that word again. It means education through correction. You didn't heed the warning. And because of his great folly, what did he lack? Wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Friends, that's how we need God's wisdom. We need it for every area of our life. Parents, we need wisdom on how to shepherd our kids through all the temptations they're going to face too. Friends, we need the body of Christ not only to help us see our sin, but to help us see Jesus. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we can only see our sin rightly when we see Jesus clearly. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for us too, right? We can be deluded. We can be led astray. We can be caught in a snare. Friends, we can make really bad decisions even as genuine Christians at times. So let's hear again what has been said from the beginning like the Father repeats himself to the Son. Sin is never secret because the eyes of the Lord sees everything. Immorality may feel free with no strings attached, but friends, immorality is costly. Real costly. Richard Sibb said, Satan gives Adam an apple and takes away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. Sexual immorality is like playing with fire. We're going to get burned. Sexual sin blinds us about the consequences of the future for the immediate gratification of the present. Kids, students, Of all the things that you need to continue to learn is this. Listen to your mom and dad. They want to share and impart so many wonderful things to teach you. I know dad can be boring when he does his dad jokes. I know mom's reminding you a hundred times. But those reminders and those times where we're just trying to have the dad talk or mom talk or whatever your mom and dad do, they're doing that because they love you. They repeat themselves, not because they feel like it, but because they want it to stick. So if your mom and dad repeats themselves a lot, it's because they love you. If they open up the Bible and try to have a family devotion without books flying everywhere and everyone having to repent because they're angry at each other, they're they're trying because they love you. (laughs) They bring you to church because they love you. They ask for forgiveness because they love you. We oftentimes show our trust to God by honoring the moms and dads God gave us. Over 40 years ago, there was a man that was a pastor in ministry. He was a big name with a big platform in Northern Virginia. He was a married man, but he was caught in an adulterous affair. It was a very large church, very prominent church, but he was caught. It was found out, and he was unrepentant. He ended up marrying his mistress. His family was ruined. The church was horrifically splintered and divided. 
He went on to marry his mistress, and after years and years of running from the Lord, suppressing what he had done, he was brought under conviction. And a part of his restoration and repentance was to stand before the whole church with everyone that was involved and had witnessed what he did against his wife. It was an ugly meeting. I wasn't there. I wasn't even born yet. (laughs) But the story that I was given, it was lots of tears, lots of anger, and lots of shame. People did say, I forgive you. The man asked, should I divorce my wife? He said, no, we don't want to compound your sin. Be faithful now to your present wife. Years later, a man on staff, a little younger than him, saw his role model, his mentor, literally plunge into sin and ruin his life. And he told him what he had learned in those 10 years of running from God until God stopped him in his tracks. And he said to Alan, was the young man at the time, I've learned 10 things about what happened to me if I could warn others not to do the same. 10 very brief lessons. Number one, do not overestimate your relationship with the Lord. In other words, don't think you're doing better spiritually than you really are. Pride always precedes a fall. Number two, do not underestimate the power of the evil one. He is deceptive. Number three, stay close to God. He is our refuge. Number four, do not get overly fatigued. Take a break. We often let our guards down when we're too tired. Number five, do not become isolated. Become accountable to others to get real help. Number six, God's way is best. Sinful pleasures only last a short time. Seven, accept God's comfort and forgiveness in the gospel. This is what he had to wrestle through. This is a man who had thousands listen to him when he was confronted with repentance and he was confronted with so much shame. They looked that man in the eye and he said, Brother, do you believe the gospel that you've been preaching to others? You've told us for all these years to believe in the grace of God. Do you believe in it now? That Christ is willing to restore and forgive you fully. Number eight, answer Jesus' question right now. Do you really love me? Number nine, God's mercy is everlasting and he can restore. And number 10, with God, all things are possible. God can do a powerful work in our hearts, even if we've made really bad decisions. But some of us might say, well, Blake, if sin, it sounds good, it looks good, it feels good, why not? Friends, this goes back to why Jesus came to die. If you and I are tempted to think little of sin, we need to think more of the cross. Why did Jesus get on that cross? It wasn't because we just need a little boost in self-esteem. He did that to save us from the wrath of God to come. Friends, sexual sin, unrepentant, will send you to hell. Pornography, to hell. Adultery, hell. Homosexuality, hell. Other sins I could say, but I would rather do that in private conversation. All of it will send us to hell. God sees the actions. He sees our hearts. Friends, sin is a really big deal, all of it, because Jesus hung on the cross for that sin. 
And yet it is Jesus who tells us, not only can I appease God's wrath for your sin, but I can give you a new heart that makes you hate that sin and love me as you were made to. Friends, one of the lies of sin is that if you want to be happy, go get yours. Go what feels good. Do what everyone else is doing. But the Bible says that our flesh lies to us. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. The Lord Jesus, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, anytime we are choosing sin over Jesus, it's called an idol. When I'm talking to someone who's been a sexual predator, a sex addict, an adulterer, a porn addict, whatever it is, sooner or later, the heart issue is not bodily addictions. That's the expression. It's an idol of the heart. We are trying to satisfy our souls with something that will destroy us. Our issue with sexual immorality is more of a worship issue. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Friends, the goal of sexual purity, listen, is knowing God and enjoying him. It's not white-knuckling the pew. It's not covenant eyes, I'm good, I have done less than I used to do. No, Augustine once famously said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Friends, our souls will never be satisfied. We will never be able to say no to sin, yes to Christ, unless Jesus is the Lord and lover of our hearts. What will make us run, hide, flee, and starve the flesh is because Jesus is better. He's stronger. He's kinder. He's more loving. He's more satisfying. And when we do things God's way in God's world, we get God's best. And do you marry couples in here? I'm speaking to myself. Read Proverbs 5 again, verses 15 to 19. Maybe your homework is you and your wife read that together and pray about it to enjoy God's best even in marriage, God's commending pleasure and satisfaction in appropriate ways. Friends, Jesus got up from the dead not to take away life, but to give us life. A few questions that you might ask. How can I actually practically grow in this area, though, Pastor Blake? Number one, store up God's word in our hearts like ammo for the fight that's coming. Store up God's word in our hearts like ammo for the fight that's coming. You know that familiar psalm, Psalm 119, verses 9 to 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? You can put woman there too. By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Friends, we should be starving our flesh, not feeding it. We should be removing things from our eyes and even around us. Don't go near, don't go near, don't go near. And then replace those thoughts with things that please the Lord. Number two, as a general rule of thumb, avoid excessive idleness, secrecy, and unguarded isolation. Randy Alcorn once said, lust thrives on secrecy. Nothing diffuses it like exposure. Here's an easy way to remember this. Stay busy doing the right things with the right people and you won't have much time for anything else. Number three, members of CCBC, let's be a church who talks openly about our sin 
inappropriate ways and talks a whole lot about Jesus. You see, we don't want to be fake, right? Let's talk about real sin. Let's talk about what we're really tempted to. Let's talk about what's going through this noggin. And then let's talk raw about how we're going to deal with it by looking to Jesus. Friends, that's what makes a gospel-centered church sweet. We all know what we deserve. (laughs) The only thing that separates us and Hugh Hefner is the grace of God. What we need is not more self-control tactics. What we need is a bigger, more beautiful vision of God. And we need each other. Friends, lust is a silent killer. Lust stifles clear thinking and kills a prayer life. Lust desensitizes us from having a clear conscience. But friends, regardless if we've been sinned against or we have sinned against others, that's why we can't forget the gospel. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A prayer that I have prayed so many times as a single man, as a married man, and I've prayed with other men, and I'm sure, ladies, you've done the same. When David was caught in his sin and rebuked by the prophet Nathan, God brought him under conviction. God brought him to repentance. He saw his sin as God saw it, and notice what he prayed to God. Psalm 51, 10 to 12, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. If you're here this morning and you realize, I've made some really bad decisions in my life. I've had others really hurt and wound me with bad decisions they've made in their life you're feeling unusually tempted and ashamed of whatever you're contemplating doing or have already done, where do we go? What do we do? Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. Jesus said if I am weak, I should come to him. Jesus said that I, if I fear, I should come to him. <laughs> Jesus said if I am lost, he will come to me. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. Let's pray. Father, that is our plea here now. We are holding fast that when we are thirsty, when we are lonely, when we are weak, when we are tired, we will come to Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would apply the warnings, apply the wisdom, apply the wonderful truths about sexual union between a husband and a wife. Lord, teach us what it means to be a holy people who sees Jesus as far more desirable than sin. And Father, we pray that we would be a church that gets raw and real and helps us see Jesus again. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified today through our time. Lord, even now as we sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen.